Welcome to the Critique Journal Club podcast for Christmas 2015. I'm Neil Orford and this is where we go through the critical care literature that caught our eye in the last month or in this case since November. So let's get straight into it. In critical care medicine we had a randomized study of a single dose of intramuscular cholecalciferol in critically ill adults. So a number of studies have reported a high prevalence of low vitamin D levels in critical illness and an association with prolonged length of stay and duration of mechanical ventilation, increased rates of infection and hospital death. The nature of this association has not been determined and there is little evidence about the effect of supplemental parenteral vitamin D in the critically ill population. This prospective open-label single-center RCT compared the effects of two doses of IM cholecalciferol that was 150,000 units or 300,000 units on the pharmacodynamic endpoints of calcium, phosphate, parathyroid hormone, CRP, interleukin-6 and cathelicidin. They did this in 50 critically ill adults with SIRS who were enrolled within 24 hours of ICU admission and who were expected to stay in ICU for greater than 48 hours. The baseline median 25 hydroxy D level was 46.5 millimoles per litre and 56% of patients were vitamin D deficient, 16% were severely deficient. 14% were vitamin D deficient with secondary hyperparathyroidism and that's greater than 7 picomoles per litre while 14% had hyperparathyroidism without vitamin D deficiency. So 25 hydroxy D levels increased significantly in both groups with a mean change of 23.3 nanomoles per litre at day 14 and no difference between the two dose groups. The proportion of patients with severe vitamin D deficiency decreased from 16% at baseline to 0% at day 14. Parathyroid hormone decreased from day 0 to day 14 and the inflammatory markers IL-6 and CRP fell significantly from day 0 to day 14. The increment in the antimicrobial marker cathelicidin level were associated with greater increments in vitamin D, suggesting maybe a dose-response relationship. There was no difference in in in-hospital mortality or length of stay between the T groups, although vitamin D deficient patients without hyperparathyroidism at baseline had a higher mortality than vitamin D deficients with hyperparathyroidism parathyroidism. So overall a single dose of IM cholecalciferol corrected vitamin D deficiency in adult patients with SIRS and there was an associated reduction in pro-inflammatory markers and an increase in antimicrobial markers. However this study did not include a placebo so it is unclear how much these changes were just due to usual recovery. It does add further evidence to this field and does create an association between the normalization of vitamin D levels and improved inflammatory state. Still, it feels like there's a lot of work to be done before 
we would consider this a therapy. Staying with critical care medicine, we have the double-blind prospective RCT of dopamine versus epinephrine as the first-line vasoactive drug in pediatric septic shock. So severe sepsis in children is expected to increase and the case fatality rate is 10% in developed countries and 18% in developing countries, increasing to up to 50% for septic shock. One area of debate in sepsis guidelines in children is which is the first line vasoactive agent of choice for children with fluid refractory septic shock. This prospective RCT conducted in Brazil over four and a half years randomized 120 children with severe sepsis that was refractory to fluid during the resuscitation period they got 40 mils per kilo to dopamine 5 to 10 mics per kilo per minute or epinephrine 0.1 to 0.3 mics per kilo per minute. They all received further bolus of 20 mils per kilo of fluid. The groups were well matched at baseline, received similar fluids, antibiotics and red cells. After maximum vasoactive agent was reached, treatment was left to physician discretion. Epinephrine led to an increased systolic blood pressure and MAP at the end of resuscitation. Dopamine was associated with an increased risk of hospital-acquired infection with pretty staggering odds ratios of 67.74, 95% confidence intervals 5 to 910. Dopamine was also associated with an increased risk of the primary outcome 28-day mortality. Again, pretty out there odds ratios of 6.51, 95% confidence intervals 1.12 to 37.8. So the adult intensivist won't be surprised because we stopped using dopamine a long time ago, at least, in Australia and New Zealand. So, overall, this study showed the use of epinephrine as a first-line vasoactive agent in septic shock was associated with better survival and reduced hospital-acquired infection compared to dopamine. The authors suggest that this could be confirmed in further studies, although, with the existing adult data showing similar results, perhaps it's time to put dopamine away for human subject trials. In the New England Journal of Medicine, we had andexanet alpha for the reversal of factor 10A inhibitor activity. So in August, we all breathed a sigh of relief with the publication of the success of a reversal agent for the direct thrombin inhibitor dabigatran. So what about the non-vitamin K direct and indirect anticoagulant factor 10A inhibitors? Well, good news. This prospective RCT reports the use of andexanet, a specific reversal agent designed to neutralize the anticoagulant effects of both direct and indirect thrombin inhibitors on the direct factor 10A inhibitors apixaban, rivaroxaban, and edoxaban. So what is andexanet? It is a recombinant modified human factor 10A decoy protein that is catalytically inactive but that retains the ability to bind factor 10A inhibitors in the active site with high affinity and a 1 to 1 stoichiometric ratio. Andexanet binds and sequesters 
factor 10a inhibitors within the vascular space, thereby restoring the activity of endogenous factor 10a and reducing levels of anticoagulant activity, as assessed by measurement of thrombin generation and anti-factor 10a activity. This prospective trial randomized 101 healthy participants receiving apixaban 5mg BD or rivaroxaban 20mg daily to andexanet as a bolus or a bolus plus infusion. They report in the apixaban group there was a decrease of anti-10a activity of 94% with the bolus uh, compared to 21% with placebo, while thrombin generation was restored to 100% with bolus compared to 11% with placebo, and that was within two to five minutes. Rivaroxaban, there was a decrease of anti-10A activity of 92% with bolus compared to 18% with placebo, while thrombin generation was restored to 96% with the bolus uh, and 7% with placebo, again, in two to five minutes. The effects persisted completely for two hours if given as a bolus and were sustained if given as infusion. And this is consistent with the pharmacokinetic profile of the drug. There was a transient increase in D-dimer and prothrombin fragments in subgroups and this resolved within 24 to 72 hours and no adverse thrombotic effects were witnessed. So in summary, andexanat effectively and rapidly reverses the anticoagulant effect of apixaban and rivaroxaban in healthy adults with no adverse effects detected, albeit in a relatively small trial under a short period of time. Andexanet has also been used to reverse the effects of enoxaparin in phase 2 trials and a phase 3b4 studies investigating the safety and efficacy of andexanate in patients with factor 10a inhibitor associated acute major bleeding. So that's all really exciting stuff for clinicians because uh, it may become a very useful drug in our armamentarium. Let's stick with the New England Journal of Medicine and we've got the trial of continuous or interrupted chest compressions during CPR. So should we interrupt chest compressions to allow ventilation and CPR for non-asphyxial cardiac arrest? Well, this cluster randomized trial conducted in 10 clinical sites with 114 EMS agencies in North America randomized 26,148 patients who were adult non-trauma out-of-heart hospital cardiac arrests referred to and had CPR provided by the 114 EMS agencies and they were grouped into 47 clusters that were randomly assigned one-to-one -to, -one to continuous chest compression or interrupted chest compressions for all out-of-hospital cardiac arrests they attended and then twice per year each cluster crossed over to the other resuscitation strategy. A thorough program of training assessment of adherence and benchmarks occurred prior to enrolment. And what they got was continuous chest compression, which was 100 compressions per minute and asynchronous positive pressure ventilation at 10 breaths per minute, or interrupted chest compression, 100 compressions per minute plus synchronous positive pressure ventilation delivered at a 2 to 30 ratio with ventilation given during 5 second pauses in compression.
At baseline, groups were similar. 42% were witnessed, 47% received bystander CPR. It was six minutes from dispatch to arrival of EMS and 22.5% were VF or VT. Treatment, there was a difference in CPR delivered with an average of 3.8 pauses in the continuous group for greater than two seconds compared to 7.0 in the interrupted group. The primary outcome, survival to hospital discharge was 9% in continuous, 9.7% in interrupted, difference of minus 0.7%, not significant. Secondary outcomes included modified Rankin scale with favourable neurological outcome in 7% of continuous, 7.7% interrupted, no difference. And in the per-protocol population, survival was significantly lower in the continuous versus the interrupted, a difference of minus 2%. The continuous group had significantly decreased rate of transport to hospital admission to hospital and shortened hospital-free survival. So overall, this large randomized trial in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patients did not report a benefit in hospital survival or favorable neurological outcome from a continuous chest compression strategy compared to traditional interrupted compressions. Okay, next we've got the HEROICS study in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. Early high-volume hemofiltration versus standard care for post-cardiac surgery shock. Could high-volume hemofiltration improve outcomes for patients with shock following cardiac surgery through improved myocardial performance and reduced vasopressor dependence following removal of toxins, pro-inflammatory mediators, and correction of acidosis? This prospective multicenter RCT conducted between October 2009 and January 2012 in France randomized 224 patients who developed severe shock and that was adrenaline greater than 0.2 mics per kilo per minute NORAD greater than 0.4 mics per kilo per minute or ECMO within 3 to 24 hours of cardiac surgery to early high volume hemofiltration 80 mils per kilo per hour for 48 hours followed by standard care versus standard care which was CVVHDF at under 35 mils per kilo per hour. They reported that the study groups were similar at baseline. High volume hemofiltration was delivered to the treatment arm with 90% of patients receiving greater than 80% of the prescribed dose. The trial was stopped at the third sequential interim analysis due to futility. The primary endpoint of 30 day mortality was 36% in both groups. The secondary endpoints, day 60, day 90, intensive care unit, in-hospital mortality rates, day 30, ventilator-free days, renal function recovery, were all comparable. The high-volume hemofiltration patients experienced faster correction of metabolic acidosis and tended to be more rapidly weaned off catecholamines, but had more frequent hypophosphatemia, metabolic alkalosis, and thrombocytopenia. So in summary, early high-volume hemofiltration compared to standard renal replacement therapy did not affect mortality or any other secondary outcomes in patients with shock after cardiac surgery. Now an important limitation is that the type of shock, vasoplegic versus cardiogenic, was not defined, although there was no signal detected. Sticking with the American Journal of 
respiratory critical care medicine, we have a multi-center randomized trial of continuous versus intermittent beta-lactam infusion in severe sepsis. This is the Bling 2 investigators for the ANZICS CTG. The traditional administration of beta-lactams in critical illness is by intermittent dosing. However, the time dependence of antibacterial activity and animal and in vitro evidence of better bacterial killing through continuous infusion has led to the hypothesis that continuous infusion may be better than intermittent dosing. This prospective multi-centre RCT conducted in 25 ICUs in Australia, New Zealand and Hong Kong randomised 432 patients with severe sepsis who were within 24 hours of being commenced on PIP-TAS or Ticarcillin or Meropenem by the treating doctor. Participants were randomised to continuous infusion or intermittent infusion over 30 minutes. They report that the patients were well matched at baseline, 54% had lung pathology, 25% abdominal, the median duration of open label treatment prior to enrolment was 13 hours and the duration of study drug was 3.2 to 3.7 days, the total course of 5.3 days median. The primary outcome of ICU free days at day 28 was no different. It was 18 days in the continuous group versus 20 days in the intermittent group, p-value 0.38. The secondary outcome measures of 90-day mortality, clinical cure at day 14, duration of bacteremia post-randomization were no different. So in summary, there was no difference in outcomes following severe sepsis with intermittent compared to continuous dosing of beta-lactams. The authors speculate on confounding effects of a higher than expected rate of the renal replacement therapy reducing the between treatment group effects and a shorter duration of therapy than expected. Given the non-significant absolute decrease in hospital mortality of 4.3% in favour of continuous dosing, a very large multi-centre trial would be required to provide definitive confirmation of these results. The authors raise the possibility of a subpopulation research to further investigate potential benefit in target populations. So I guess we'll wait and see. In the Lancet Respiratory Medicine, we have restricted versus continued standard caloric intake during the management of refeeding syndrome in critically ill adults. So the management of refeeding syndrome is an area in which we have equipoise with half of intensive